This morning, the text I'll be preaching from is Isaiah 55, if you'd like to look for that in your Bibles. Context, you're jumping into the end of Isaiah, and the context here is Isaiah is looking even beyond the people, the Israelites, at the moment of his prophecy. He's looking to the days in which they will be exiled to Babylon. Um, And he's looking further even than that. He's looking to when they will be freed from their exile to Babylon, when they'll experience both personal and corporate restoration. And as we'll see in the text this morning, it looks well beyond the Israelites all the way up to the church and beyond. So, reading from Isaiah 55, I would ask that you give your full attention, knowing that this is God's word to us. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples. A leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace, and the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Pray with me, please. Father, we ask that you would grant us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us this morning through your word, and may it be for your glory and for our joy in Christ Jesus. Amen. In, I'd like to tell you guys a story. Some of you may have seen the movie, also a book called Babette's Feast. And in that story, the context or the setting it takes place in this very poor, grim fishing village off the coast of Denmark. And the spiritual climate is as grim as the physical setting. Most of the people in this village are elderly Lutherans, and their congregation is very austere, ascetic, and dying. 
dying literally and physically. Uh, they're dying of age, old age. And their spirituality has been reduced to a bland renunciation of all worldly pleasures, including savory food. So their diet is a diet of cod, watery soup, and bread. And into this scene stumbles Babette. On a dull, rainy evening, she knocks on the door of two sisters who are basically leaders in the church. She needs refuge. Um, what's happened is a mutual friend of hers, Babette's, and these sisters has sent Babette to them for, to save her life. It's times of the French Civil War. Her husband and son have been killed. And so she's sent out here. And with just one simple note, she left in haste, and the note just said this, Babette can cook. Well, you laugh because you know the story. Neither uh, she nor they have any money, but basically they don't want to turn her away, so they take her in and she serves for room and board, basically as a maid, for 12 years. But one of her friends back in Paris, she's from Paris, has been renewing her lottery ticket every year, and it so happens that this year she wins the lottery. And so now she owns 10,000 francs. I don't know exactly how much that is. My best estimates, looking on the Internet, maybe would be the equivalent of $50,000 today. Well, it so happens that the church is also celebrating a special 100-year anniversary that very year. So Babette has the idea. She requests the opportunity to prepare a French dinner for them, to invite this elderly congregation to a true French dinner. Well, they reluctantly consent to her concession, little knowing that she was once the renowned woman chef of the very famous Café Anglais in Paris. Over the next couple of weeks, they witness amazing sights as boat after boat docks, unloading all the provisions for her kitchen. Pheasants, ham, fresh vegetables, truffles, a huge tortoise, champagne, and the finest of wines. In view of this, the congregation gets together and they privately pledge that they're going to withhold any comment to her about the meal, lest she get the wrong idea. That his tongues were meant for praise and thanksgiving, not for indulging in exotic tastes. Well, the feast arrives, and the diners partake of course after course of the finest fare in mute silence. However, uh, the magnificent feast slowly works its magic, and the parishioners' blood warms, their tongues loose, and there even begins to be heard laughter from the feast. And then the story closes with two scenes. Let me read one of those. It was quite a nice dinner, Babette. This is after the dinner. Martine says tentatively, Babette seems far away. After a time, she says to them, I was once cook at the Café Anglais. We will all remember this evening when you have gone back to Paris, Babette, Martine adds, as if not hearing her. Babette tells them that she will not be going back to Paris. All of her friends and relatives there have been killed or imprisoned. And of course, it would be expensive to return to Paris. But what about the 10,000 francs, the sisters ask. Then Babette drops the bombshell. She has spent her winnings. Every last franc of the 10,000 uh, 10, she won on the feast they have just devoured. Oh, don't be shocked, she tells them. That is what a proper dinner for 12 cost at the Café Anglais. Well, it is an amazing story, an amazing invitation, gracious, audacious, that she makes to them and that comes to pass as they receive the call. And such is the case this morning. 
in the text that, we're, that we've read, it is an audacious invitation given to God's people. And this morning, I'll give you the roadmap of where I'm going in my sermon. I'm going to look at the invitation itself, and then I'm going to look at the response to the invitation, the response we're called to have. And then I'm going to look at the consequences for those who respond. First of all, the invitation, come, come, come. Did you notice the repetition of that command? Come, come, come. First of all, who is it extended to? What well, says at the very beginning, it's extended to all people, but with at least some requisites. To everyone who thirsts. You see, this is not an invitation for those who are already quite smug and satisfied in their own selves. Uh, it's rather for those who feel a deep spiritual need, a thirst. It also says it's not for those who have money. Come you who have no money. Now, it's obviously here, being figurative, uh, those who are spiritually bankrupt and needy, those who don't have the wherewithal and the resources to feed themselves spiritually, those who are uh, not satisfied in their own efforts and resources are invited to come. And this is obviously a picture of the broken and contrite of heart whom God says he will not despise, uh, whom Christ in the New Testament calls to himself when he says, come, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you noticed, if you paid attention in the New Testament reading, it includes those who receive the promise in John that they will never thirst again or hunger if they come to Christ, the bread of life. So this first section of invitation strongly points to Christ himself. And Christ in the New Testament reading identified himself as its fulfillment. He is the one who beckons us to come. And he is the water and the bread that satisfies us. Now, what are the thirsty and the broken offered in this passage? The passage says they're offered water, wine, milk, bread. And as Calvin points out, all of these together signify the complete satisfaction of all of our needs. It is the water and the bread of life. It is the wine of joy. It is the milk of fullness or of richness. It is the satisfaction of the soul in all of our hunger. And what are the thirsty, the needy, and the broken invited to do? Well, this is rather curious. Did you notice, did you pay attention to the apparent contradiction here? It says to drink water, but then it says to buy milk, wine, bread, and if you were reading the first time, I think it would have been an astute question to ask, what do you mean buy? I thought it was free. It says it's without charge. It says it's without price. Why then would we buy if we have no money? Well, it is free. It is free for the one who is invited. It is an all-you-can-eat buffet of the finest affair. Like Babette's Feast, it's costly, but it's not for the one who comes to buy. For he cannot. All of this is free for the one who comes. But it was in no way free for the one who invited. It was rather very costly for the one who invites. Well, Isaiah then questions the exiled Israelites and us through them. He goes on to ask, why? He asks, why do you spend your money on what isn't bread? 
Why do you spend your money on what doesn't satisfy? Why do you continue to gorge on candy, chips, and soda? Why do you stay at Burger King when the chart house is offered? Why do you labor for that which doesn't satisfy? Listen, listen good. Eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Now, if you're getting confused here about the metaphor, God himself clears it up. God tells us very plainly in verse 3 what the meaning of the metaphor is. He says, um, okay, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Hear that your soul may live. And then he goes on, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Now, it's obvious here that it's not a call to abandon a bad diet, but it's rather a call uh, to abandon bad spiritual food, that is, false idols of the heart, those false idols that we dabble with, that we, so to speak, figuratively speaking, we eat, that temporarily satisfy us, but in the end, they leave us empty. It is a call to come out of soul-shrinking idolatry into soul-satisfying trust in God. And then the invitation comes with a promise. At the end of verse 3, uh, it says there, and I will make an everlasting, I will make with you an everlasting covenant for the one who hears, for the one who comes, an everlasting covenant. And then it mentions David. So here it's referring to the covenant with David. Do you remember what that covenant was? The covenant he made with King David? That through David there would be a perpetual dynasty that never ends. That there would always be someone on the throne of God's kingdom. And we know Christ would be the fulfillment of that prophecy. And in fact, the text gives us a hint that it's looking far beyond King David to one of his sons, to someone who would rule forever. Look in verse 5. He says, <clears throat> Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. Now, nation, the word nation here, it is curious that it's in the singular, but if you notice right before that, it talked about peoples, plural, and then nation. And the word nation in Hebrew is rarely used for Israel. It almost always refers to the Gentile nations. And then Isaiah uses a verb. This shall run is a curious verb in Hebrew for a couple reasons. First of all, it's plural. He just said nation, but I think he's referring to peoples as well. And it's a plural verb. And notice that it's in the future tense. At the time of this writing, David had already died. And so it's not looking back, past tense, to David. It's looking forward, rather, uh, to peoples that would, in the future, run after this, this king. And so, obviously, uh, it's pointing to a Davidic king in the future. And it's pointing to you as well, the Gentiles, who would run to this Davidic king. And so, you may be thinking, Keith, what's your point? Where are you going with this? Rather, I would say Isaiah's point is that those who come... And those who truly hear and listen will be a part of those people who run to the king and who are forever under the blessed promise of this Davidic dynasty. The thirsty, the needy, the poor who drink the water of life, who feed upon the bread from heaven, 
who come to God will be the ones who enter into everlasting covenant, living under the blessed rule of the king who will be glorified forever. So here's my summary before we go on to the next part. If you've lost me somewhere, you can get up to speed with this. The invitation extended is to life, life abundant, where our deepest needs are satisfied. It is a spiritual feast without charge. And it includes the promise of everlasting blessing under the true and glorified King Jesus. How is one then to respond to such an audacious, magnanimous, gracious invitation? Verse 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. Four verbs here that tell us how to respond. The first one it says is seek him while he may be found. That is the day of salvation. The day in which he may be found was effective in the days of the exiles, the Israelite exiles in Babylon. And that day of salvation extends on and on even to now. The day of salvation is still at hand. The invitation to the feast still goes out. But it is an offer that will one day expire. So now, in the day of salvation, in the day of his favor, seek him. Then it says, call upon him while he is near. And this word near in the Hebrew has the idea of next of kin, close of kin. He is next of kin. And there's another image that's very pertinent here in the Old Testament. He is like a kinsman redeemer. If you remember the story of Ruth, a kinsman redeemer is someone who is next of kin, who can buy you out of slavery should you have fallen into slavery. And God takes that role himself. He is the kinsman redeemer who has come near to us. He's come so near to us that he is now our elder brother. He has flesh and blood like you. He's the elder brother in the family of God, and he's a redeemer, and he is near. He's near to you. So come, come to him. Call upon him. Then we have our third word of exhortation in the response to the invitation. We have seek, we have call upon, and then verse 7 says to forsake. It says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous his thoughts. Now, there is a way that seems right to a man, Proverbs says, but it only leads to death. And that way is to find life on our own terms, through our own resources. In essence, it is idolatry. In our wicked ways, our idolatry, our finding life on our own terms rather than bending the knee and finding it on God's terms is called wicked. And perhaps this morning, you know yourself to be wicked. You know yourself to be guilty. You know your thoughts to be unrighteous. You drink from every other fountain besides Christ for your meaning, for your security. So the call this morning is to seek him. It's to forsake your wicked ways. And then lastly, there's a call to return to the Lord. Um, this is, first of all, a call to the Israelites in exile to return to the true God and the source of life. But of course, it's a call that extends to our day as well. Because the day of salvation 
is still near. The kinsman redeemer, redeemer is close at, hand, close at hand. So these four words make up a robust call to repent. To repent from your idolatrous ways. To repent from drinking from fountains that don't satisfy. And to drink from Christ himself. To seek, call upon, forsake, return. And one question I'd like to answer here. This that might arise in your mind. It is a free invitation, and this is not some way to work to pay for your, your banquet meal. It's rather the proper response of all of those who have seen their own spiritual bankruptcy. And in light of the spiritual bankruptcy, they've heard the call. They've heard the invitation to come. Here we have the call to repent, to turn from false idols that don't satisfy and embrace the true God as your soul's delight. Lastly, what are the consequences for he or she who comes, hears and repents? The rest of the passage is full of promises for the one who would come, for the penitent. Uh, I want you to have the flow of the passage. Invitation, response to the invitation. And for those who would respond in repentance and turn to God and receive the call, there is this for, for this for that will be true, for this will be true, for that will be true. The astounding promises that will govern our lives. And there's a full, fourfold repetition of the preposition for, if you notice that. For this, for that, for this, for that. Now, in your Bibles, if you're astute, there, it actually occurs five times. But in the Hebrew, the word only occurs four times. So I will stick with the, the four uh, purpose clauses that, come with, that start with the word for from the Hebrew. Uh, turning back to your Bibles, 7b, uh, the end of 7. I'll start right in the middle. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God. The first four right here. For he will abundantly pardon. Oh, that's the kind of pardon I need. Abundant pardon. And the depth, the depth of the pardon of God is only seen when we fast forward just a bit to the cross. When Christ died at the end of his crucifixion, he cried out a word, one word in Greek that's translated, it is finished. It is finished. He used the perfect voice in Greek, which means it is finished now, it stands finished now, and it always will be finished full atonement, full expiation for all of our sins, done for those who turn to the Lord. The good word this morning is his arm is never too short to forgive all of your sins because Christ has already, as a sacrificial lamb, expiated for our sins, expiated the wrath of God, paid the penalty. So he will pardon, it says here, abundantly. The cross is our proof of this. Verse 8, the second four. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Then he says, for the heavens, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Now, this serves to both highlight the urgency of our need to repent and the comfort that God stands ready to forgive. First of all, the urgency. If you're looking at this verse in context and you've just seen that our ways are wicked, we're called to forsake our wicked ways and our thoughts, 
you're going to see there's an immeasurable gap that occurs here. Um, our ways are wicked, our thoughts are wicked. And then verse 8 says, God's ways are high and exalted. His thoughts are high and exalted. So you got the picture? <laughs> God's ways and thoughts, highly exalted, perfectly holy. Our ways are wicked. An immeasurable gap exists between us and God. And it should cause us to despair as we see our plight, as we see our sin. But then we have words of comfort intrinsic in this very image that God uses. And John Calvin draws out the comfort of this context. And it's this. Man in his natural state is angry, unforgiving. We exact revenge upon one another. And if we realize how mean we truly are, that is, our wicked ways, and we project this image onto God, we would be doomed if God were like us. But the point is, God is not like man. God, unlike man, he has compassion on the sinner, and he pardons the penitent. So you this morning who are bitter over man's wickedness, and you've seen your own ugliness, there is hope. God is not like a man. He extends grace and abundant forgiveness to the sinner. Then, uh, our third four. For the one uh, who comes and hears and repents, there's this one, another further, further promise of assurance. Look at verse 10. Look at our third four. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so my so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but accomplish the purpose for which I sent it forward. Now, to these despondent exiles, Israelites, here God's giving them reassurance that as he shares these great words of invitation, he's not just uh, blowing hot air, so to speak, that he will keep his word, even if it seems too good to be true. When we lived in Guadalajara every year, there was a dry season. Uh, some of you may not know, we were missionaries in Mexico for a long time. And in Guadalajara, it's just the opposite of Oregon. Oregon, it rains for nine months, and then you get a three-month three respite. Guadalajara, it's sunny for nine months, and then you get three months of rain. And at the end of those nine months, the ground was parched. It was dry. It was ugly. We had local parks close by that we would go to, and they were just like, well, let's go play in the Dust Bowl. But it was amazing. Just one or two rains. And I don't know, my, I'm sure my family, I thought everything was dead and would never come back alive. The rains would come, and everything would turn completely green again. So that's the idea, is even as the rain replenishes the earth and brings forth the purpose for which God has called it, in the same way, his words of promise like in this passage, they come down like fresh rains and they serve their purpose of bringing us to the point we need to come to. They, they nourish us. And this is a fabulous promise to cling to in those times when you feel like parched dirt, when you feel like you're living in exile from God. Even as he sends the water to refresh the earth, replenish the ground, so also, he will fulfill his word, and he will feed your soul with his word, and he will accomplish in giving you his word the purpose for which it comes.
You can count on that. And then we have our final four in the last two verses, uh, jumping to verse 12. The final four lays out those purposes of God in sowing the seed in our heart, and it forms the final promise given to those who would repent and, res and respond to the invitation. It says this, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle and it shall make a name for the Lord an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off friends this is exile language as we start this is really fits the Israelites when it says um, in verse 12 you shall go out go out from where from exile in joy, and you shall be led forth in peace. This is a prophecy to the Israelites that they would not stay in Babylon, that they would be liberated, that they would come out of exile with joy, and that they would have shalom, peace with their God once more, restoration. And can you imagine the joy the Israelites felt when they saw this happen, when they were freed to return to their homeland after 70 years of captivity? Let's just for a second put ourselves in the Israelites' sandals. Note, first of all, that they're led forth. They're led out. They go forth. That is, they don't have the homecoming yet. This isn't prophesying the homecoming yet. It's rather, they're freed from exile, but not home. And they would have to go over mountains and hills. They would have to cross deserts to get back to their homeland. But far from being obstacles, the inanimate creation ruptures forth in praise of God. And as they enter the desert, the thorns and the thistles, the briars, become cypresses and myrtles, which are evergreens. Now, as we've seen throughout this passage, it points far forward to simply the Israelites. And in this particular section, it reaches this epiphany. The poetic appeal points much to a much far further out and greater exodus than the Israelites experienced. It is we who, through faith in Christ, have been liberated from the cruelest of spiritual captivities into the freedom and joy of the sons of God. And the sublime language of verse 13 points forward to the very consummation of all of God's people's redemption. The creation singing and praising will be fulfilled when what Paul prophesied comes true. Do you remember in Romans 8? Paul spoke of when the creation is liberated from its groaning, from its bondage to decay, and it's brought into the freedom of the sons of God when Christ returns. And the thorns and the briars, those are signs of the curse. Those came into the Garden of Eden when they fell to sin. The myrtle... And the cypress are evergreens. That is, they're signs of life. So this is nothing less than the picture of the reversal of the curse, the fall, death being swallowed up by life. And although this is the, the image that's held up to all of us right now in God's word, we dare not lose sight of the fact that it's speaking of the journey home, that we may taste of this eternal blessing even now, on the journey home. The fall will be reversed in heaven, but it's even now being reversed 
for those who have been set free in Christ. The power of sin losing its grip. The power of sin slowly is losing its dominion. And the penalty of sin, death, has been vanquished already. We will never suffer the second eternal death. That foe has been vanquished. The thorn is giving way to the evergreen even now. The cure that we all long for and we will one day have has even begun now. The homeland that we pine for even now blows its fragrant winds over our paths. The banquet that we hunger for even now it begins to satiate and satisfy. I told you that Babette's feast ended with two scenes. The second scene is with the frail, elderly, ascetic, dour Lutherans dancing for joy like children around a fountain on a starlit night as the snow gently falls. You see, they had tasted of a costly banquet free of charge and they were going forth in joy. Friends, such as Isaiah, I should say, such as Christ's invitation to us that begins with this question. Why do you spend yourself on bread that does not satisfy? Come. Come this morning. Feed on Christ. And join the joyous journey to our homeland. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have called sinners to yourself. We thank you that your, your pardon is abundant. We thank you that the call is true, that you will bring it to pass. We thank you for the hope we have that the, the fall will be reversed. Oh, Father, we long for that day. We long for the day when there's no, there's no more tears, no more battle. We long for the day when the feast has begun. But Father, we thank you that you have even now allowed us to drink from Christ. You have even now satiated our spiritual thirst. You have even now met our needs. You have even now given us joy in the journey. Father, may, our for may all of our tasting even now, all of our experience of your Holy Spirit be a foreshadowing of the great day to come. And may we not lose sight of that day. May we live in anticipation of that day when the mountains and hills shall sing forth with no more decay, when sin no longer hounds us, when death is a thing of the past. Father, even now, set our hearts on this joyous journey. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen.